Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. on the East Coast to 4 p.m. on the West Coast and a little bit after midnight in Jersey. Thanks for staying up with us, Stuart Sivray, the state senator from Sivray, previous state senator. You've, you've been very kind to accommodate us at this late hour, and I'm so glad you're here for another conversation with our audience about what happened in Jersey and how it relates to the monarchy, the child abuse case that happened there, the fact that it's really used as a crime haven, money laundering center that impacts the entire world. So I'm really thrilled that you are you're here tonight. How are you doing? I'm okay. Um, much the same as usual. It's a difficult kind of a war that we're involved in, but I'm I am constantly buoyed and encouraged by the amount of um, international support I get from other, you know, campaigners, people like yourself and others. And yeah, it's uh, we live in very interesting times, unique times in so many ways. This is, of course, the six-month anniversary after the attempted insurrection, which was a, a moment of, I, I'm still not sure most people actually quite yet got their heads around, certainly on this side of the pond. Just or, or this side, how- I would say serious it was mm. just how serious it was literally i watched that unfolding live and i knew then that we were watching basically civilization hanging by a thread mm. had the insurrectionists succeeded frankly america would be in the pits of civil war right now and the enemies of the west would be doing what we expect they them to do and it would it could very well have been basically the end of the western enlightenment project that's how serious it was I, I think you're right. Not only that, I think we are still in an information civil war. Yeah. I don't think we're out of it. And I think that was one act sure. of that information civil war, but surely there's lots more to come. The reality of what we're dealing with here is that the old world, as it were, the autocrats and the, some would say even the monarchists, yeah. are at odds with democracy. And we are beginning to see that conflict bubble up in a way which is becoming very real in terms of lives and in terms of events, as you describe on the six-month anniversary of January the 6th, that attempted coup that happened. I call it an attempt attempted coup. People might call it other things, but we've done an extraordinary amount of uh, investigating here on narrative with an incredible amount of people who are, you know, working journalists, but also citizen journalists. And just to give people a sense of how far, you know, we've gone in this investigation, it has so many tentacles. We've did maybe 16 hours so far of full investigations. And, and it's gone through things like first identifying when the conspiracy was, was announced or at least uh, begun to be discussed publicly, which was around September 10th, so early last year. Then we looked at what Miller, the, the defense secretary, and Michael Flynn, what they were doing, and Charles Flynn, what he was doing inside the military, delaying the National Guard for who knows what reason. It's still unclear why the National Guard was delayed for so long. We've looked at who the key plotters are. We've identified Stone, Alex Jones, and others. And we've also traced the whole thing back to the Council for National Policy, which is a very important organization in the United States, which is working towards creating a theocracy in the United States. Plus, we followed the money, and we've gone all the way to all the domestic suppliers of the money, like the Publix woman down in Florida, but also the Moonies of all people who are supporting this organization called AON, which is a news network here, runs opposed CNN, and is running basically propaganda for the Moonies. And there's also indications of Chinese and Asian money flowing into the Proud Boys. It's really unusual. On top of that, you've got this QAnon thing that we've exposed uh, along with so many great people on the show. And of course, the case against Roger Stone we've discussed. Last week, we even told people about this thing called the First Amendment Praetorians, which is another militia Praetorians, group. Praetorians, yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's another militia group that we'd no one had really heard of. And that what they are doing is basically the same kind of thing. They're building up uh, an attempt to have a revolution in America. Now, the last time we had a revolution in this country was to get rid of the King of Britain. He was not welcome here. And we thought we'd gotten rid of him, but it still seems like 
the queen and the monarchy have quite a lot of influence here on, on the side of, of the pond. And that comes through transnational crime, which you have been valiantly yeah. fighting against for a very long time. Now, Jersey, as we all know, is an offshore tax haven. It's not meant to be an offshore criminal haven, but because it's a tax haven, it attracts all these criminals. Tell us how that really works. Jersey is a crown dependency, which means that it's not part of the United Kingdom, but it is British, and it answers effectively to the crown, to the monarch herself. Mm -hmm. So basically, the authorities on Jersey ultimately are only answerable and responsible to the monarch. Now, Jersey has always used its, its privileged connection to the English monarchy, to the British monarchy, for many centuries, because ever since the days of William the Conqueror and then King John, the, the elites, the feudal elites of the Channel Islands have owed their, have pledged their allegiance to the English monarch in return for the English monarch granting the, the elite on the Channel Islands all kinds of privileges and powers so that they would retain a kind of quasi-independence and things of that nature. So that's the historical picture. So what the, the uh, Jersey elites have essentially done for centuries, as well as things like slave trading and that kind of stuff, essentially what they did throughout most of the centuries was piracy. They were privateers. Uh, they were essentially licensed by the monarch to go off and carry out war against the ships of other nations, the enemies of England. And legitimate you know, piracy, they, like real piracy, like just going on in the seas and, bad, and stealing. Absolutely, real, real piracy. I had no idea. And the, the, the way the deal works, the local pirates, the privateers, the corsairs, mm -hmm. they get to keep a lot of the booty, right. and the, the monarch gets a cut of the action. In That's gone all the way back for, forever, for as long as people centuries. Wow. Okay. And what, what is the cut? Do we know how much does a king or queen well, you know, get cut in on a on a little pirate on a private uh, piracy loot? Do you have any idea? I don't know. That probably <laughs> varied on a case by case <laughs> basis, depending who the the leaders of the island are called the bailiff, who is right. a person appointed by the monarch, who is the head of the legislature and the judiciary. So effectively, that person has been the um the power as it were, of the monarch on the island. And it's they that have traditionally decided what's going to happen or not happen and who gets a cut of what over the centuries. Right. And, you know, regrettably, as we've discovered because of the Jersey situation, it's very much still like that in the late 20th century and on into the 21st century. And consequently, and the wealth, the economic advantage of Jersey, by accident, really, because of the nature of the globalized globalizing economy after World War II, and then the intervention, the ar arrival of electronic communications. Mm. Jersey just slipped very conveniently and easily from being an actual pirate base for centuries into being a financial pirate base. And that's essentially what Jersey does. Right. It's number one industry is financial uh, institutions, which basically... Oh, by, by, in, by miles, yeah. Yeah, it basically involves registering offshore companies a lot of the time for gangsters, mobsters, drug dealers, you name yeah. it, who want to hide their money somewhere, don't want to pay taxes. That's where they go and do it. And the Queen, as you suggest, does she get a cut of all of that? Is that still the case where, because they're doing the banking there, she gets a cut of it? There's no reason to assume otherwise. That's right. always how it worked in the old days, and there's never been any change. The Queen actually does her private personal banking here. Right. a local private bank and yeah you know it it's all it all works out very conveniently and of course one of the the components of this system as it were which perhaps isn't focused on enough is actually the ancient 
City of London Corporation itself, which mm. of course was you know, famously empowered and established by Magna Carta. That body of course still exists with huge power today. It's like effectively a state within a state right. in Britain. The City of London has all kinds of um, powers and privileges that ordinary people in the rest of Britain don't get. And they actually have quite remarkably, because of Magna Carta, a, a lot of direct actual power over the monarch. They, the guilds of the City of London can demand an audience with the monarch whenever they so choose. Oh, really? And there is this individual, this ancient post in the Houses of Parliament who has an automatic right to sit in the Houses of Parliament and to always discuss and be consulted by the Speaker of the House of Commons and of the House of Lords. And this office is called the Office of the Remembrancer. And that is a post, that's a post of the City of London Corporation. So you can see how the City of London Corporation, all the ancient banks, law firms in particular, and, and accountancy practices that are concentrated in the square mile in the City of London, have this immense power and lobby over the very corridors of power, over the palace as well as Westminster. Absolutely. So, the financial sector has been important to to the UK and to Great Britain, and mm. particularly law has been important to the country as a way of getting revenue. It's really what people have looked at as a place of stable law and governance. That's why people like to bank there, presumably, because you, know, you get to keep your money. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, does, is the Queen aware of everyone who's investing in 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 the island? Probably, probably she knows some of it. She doesn't necessarily need to know all of it, but she might be getting a cut of it. That seems very likely. Where it connects so interestingly for me is you are most notably known for raising the alarm around the child abuse scandal that happened in Jersey, involving Jimmy Savile particularly, but also involving a whole lot of other people on that island, and. You paid a pretty hefty price for that personally, and we'll discuss a little bit of that later on. But to tonight, for the first time, we're going to take a look at, at, at the Queen's response to you, which has never really happened before, at least response to the scandal and the complaints around that. Response to the scandal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's, a, it's a, not a very long document, but it is a document that is going to show you what certainly the people around the Queen, the private secretary, thought of the scandal at the time and how they sought to manage it at the time. And these are a series of letters, but only one from the actual palace is, I believe, in there. So we're going to go through that in the second half of the show. But is there anything you want to say about those letters before we get there and how important they are to, to the story? But believe it or not, there are a few good, honest lawyers around. And we have one in Jersey, at least, advocate Philip Sinnell, who was aware of these atrocities. He took it after the issue got raised. He recognized fairly early that these were true and legitimate concerns. So he, he followed the saga and did what he could to try and help the police under their good leadership then and to try and assist people like me and others. But of course, ultimately, he was met by absolute stonewall blockages from the United Kingdom, from the palace and from the United Kingdom Justice Department. So the, the correspondence that you have there is correspondence that took place between Advocate Sinel and the palace. Right. And it, it's clear from that correspondence, and there, there are a number of uh, emails and letters in there. There's one, one from signed by Sir Paul Geit, who was then the Queen's personal private secretary. That's um, you know, Buckingham Palace. You know, yeah. that was. I'm, I'm looking at that right yeah. now. I just put it up for everyone to see. They go, oh, sorry, you're holding it up yeah. in your hand there as well. But let me get cut back to us so you can show them. There you go. That's that very document we're talking about there. 
And there it says yep. uh, Buckingham Palace at the top. It's got a date on it. What is the date there? Uh, the, the date of that letter is the 22nd of June, 2015. And so you we're not talking about a long time ago. The scandal was dated back to the early 2000s, mid-2000s. But this is correspondence that happened in 2015, as recent as that. Yeah, I mean, there's another, another letter here, too. This one was addressed to... This one came from Balmoral Castle, where the Queen was at that time. Okay. I don't think I've seen that. You can see that these two letters amount essentially to a couple of paragraphs, which were contemptuously dismissive of what were the most profound and serious concerns. Advocate Sinel was explaining truthfully and frank, frankly to the monarch who has ultimately legal and constitutional responsibility for the welfare of her subjects on the Channel Islands. He was explaining to her the um, utter corruption in the Jersey judiciary, which yeah, we will perhaps come on to a little bit later, but explaining how so many vulnerable children had been abused, how uh, rapes had been concealed, how murders had been concealed, how the powers of the Crown effectively were being used to oppress and suppress not only me, but also the former police chief, Graham Power, the former deputy police chief. And these are the most serious of concerns that were being raised about child abuse and the death of, like uh, Advocate Sinel describes the death of Daniela Jarman, who, if you cast your mind back to the BBC Storyville documentary, mm -hmm. Daniela actually is one of the people who appeared in that documentary. She, that footage was filmed with her in 2008 by BBC Panorama, who I eventually succeeded in getting interested to come and try and expose some of the Jersey cover-ups. Daniela was, I'm as certain as I can be, she died in, I think, December 2015, and bluntly, she was murdered. We have, she was one of at least two people to have been murdered who were closely associated with the child abuse investigation. And what makes and you say he, that? What makes you say that it was a murder? Because uh, she didn't have any serious health concerns or other issues at the time. She was a profoundly problematic witness to the Jersey establishment who were running a fake public inquiry at the stage, which right. she had given evidence to. But they knew perfectly well because she was publicly a public figure for survivors. And she had been interviewed in the Panorama program. When the public inquiry report came out and it ended up being pretty much fake and full of mendacity and omissions. And it had constructively, illegally excluded me from giving evidence to it through a variety of methods. Daniela wouldn't have taken that quietly. She would have been the media condemning the quality of the report. And in particular, she would have been condemning the, the transnational mobster law firm, basically Appleby Global, mm -hmm. Applebee's, who were fundamentally involved from the very, very get-go in oppressing and obstructing me from late 2007 on, and then were indeed were responsible for all these trumped up data protection charges against me, which ended up having me becoming Jersey's first political prisoner mm. since the Nazis got thrown out. Mm. So Daniela was a huge problem to them. And, and also your colleague in arms in this thing. It sounds like she was the person who was fighting closely with you um, in getting yeah. this attention out there. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that must, um, that must uh, send the, a chill the, down the, your spine the, in terms of yeah, your own the, concerns. The, um, the abuse episode, she was one of a number of children, orphans, that were in the infamous Blanche-Pierre group home. And they were absolutely, for a period of years, basically tortured and abused and molested in all kinds of psychopathic ways by a, a couple, Jane and Alan Maguire, who were running the place. Clearly, un, un, unmitigated psychopaths. 
and this was throughout the late 1980s, and the Jersey authorities knew about this and repeatedly turned a blind eye to the abuse. So you can see for, the, for that reason, Daniela was a dramatically important witness. And it so happens that the very last um, night of her life, she was out socializing at a, a place in Jersey, the Radisson Blue Waterfront Hotel. And for that reason, I can't go, I can't go into further details for legal risks. They'll just put me in prison again. But it's fair to say we've all got a pretty good idea who they got mm. to kill her. Oh. It's such an unbelievable situation you find yourself in Jersey because you think of the United Kingdom or Great Britain as a place where there's a lot of political freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of activity and association like this. But those letters that we are going to go through later on and, and what you're just describing here now uh, almost describes a place that is as draconian as Belarus. Belarusia is today. It's Belarusia is today. It sounds like an autocratic, dictatorial environment that you're living in. Sure. The way I try to describe what Jer how Jersey works to people is that if you to look at Jersey from the outside, it looks very kind of middle class and respectable and well governed. It looks neat and tidy, and it's got a low street crime rate. And it appears to have a legislature and a judicial system and a police force and a prosecution system, all the normal components of a functioning state. But in truth, all of that's fake. All of that's just window dressing, mm. just stage props. It's all a Potemkin village. Jersey is a pure feudatory. It's a pure feudal monarchy still. And just European states were in centuries gone by. And because of the inherent vulnerabilities that a, that a monarchical system has to corruption and all kinds of pushing and pulling influences by various factions of courtiers in the modern era with so many billions of dollars flowing around the world so quickly it was very easy for the monarchy's powers to become completely abused corrupted captured and essentially jersey is jersey has probably an ancient kind of feudal mafia system in jersey is run and has been run for centuries and centuries by essentially what are the local crime families mm. local you know elite. The pirates basically the pirates yeah, that are still... pirates yeah yeah but the, the great uh, I, I say this often but it bears repeating the great uh, achievement if we can call it that of the jersey mafia syndicates is that they've they are their control has been so total and complete that they've achieved that thing that maf most mafia syndicates around the world can only dream of, which is complete invisibility. Right. People never looked at Jersey and thought, oh, that's a place like Sicily or Corsica or Malta, where the mafia activity is really obvious. People, none of that was visible in Jersey, but it hasn't needed to be because the local crime families are the police force, the judiciary and the right. courts. It hasn't been invisible either, because people have obviously been going through mm. these terrible atrocities. They just have never been exposed. And so your story right, yeah. of telling, the, revealing some of the stuff that's been going on there, along with just I mean, many other documentation and documentaries and, and evidence from the Panama documents and, and elsewhere, there's a clear sure. line of evidence now that shows us that Jersey is not the kind of place that you go to if you want to do kosher booking, you, or uh, kosher bookkeeping, I should say. It's, mm -hmm. it's the kind of place you want to swindle stuff. And that's, and, and that's why it exists. And it's probably been like that forever for a good reason, because it, it makes someone a lot of money. Now, the queen is, you, you, and I, I think it's important just to stress this. You, you say, to, you said to me this before, that you don't think that the queen is necessarily like wholly responsible for 
this criminal activity over there. It's more that she's being used or the system of the crown has been used by the local officials there. Is that correct? What, what, what I would say to that is that, and this is, a, is in many ways the problem. We just don't actually know, and we have no way of knowing how much the monarch herself does or does not know about the direct corruptions and the catalogue of staggering criminality that's gone on Jersey. Now, it may well be uh, that she is innocent of a lot of that kind of knowledge and is surrounded by these kind of these, frankly, dishonest and mendacious advisors like Christopher Geit and who have just misled her and advised her extremely poorly over the decades. That could indeed be, be, be one scenario. But on the other hand, bluntly, the Queen is, of course, the head of the Privy Council, which again is a, a rather, frankly, mysterious and ill-defined and bizarre component of the British Constitution. She is the head of the Privy Council, which meets routinely with the Prime Minister and you know, other senior people. And there's no doubt that people like, for example, the then Justice Secretary in 2007 and eight, who I wrote to very extensively about the absolute breakdown in the rule of law on Jersey and the, the, the undisguised judicial corruption. He certainly, as a Privy Councillor and as the Justice Secretary with responsibility you know, for the Crown dependencies, will undoubtedly have had discussions with the monarch and her closest advisers about the Jersey situation. So why then did the Queen's directly appointed and empowered representatives on Jersey, like the bailiffs and attorney generals, end up covering up child abuse, letting people like Jimmy Savile off the hook, letting local rapists and psychopaths and murderers off the hook, and suppressing illegally high, letting the mob hijack the Jersey police force via the illegal suspension of the good police chief, Graham Power, and then jailed for yeah. trying to represent my constituents and speaking out on their behalf. And one of the crazy things about that time is that it's worth remembering that the, the scandal about Jimmy Savile, the infamous British child abuser, Mm -hmm. didn't erupt until like shortly after his death, I think in late 2011. Mm -hmm. Now, Savile, as we saw from the um, Storyville documentary, had been abusing kids and had been was guilty of uh, molesting people that were my constituents on Jersey. So when I was speaking out on their behalf in 2007 and eight, and then, but then the police got hijacked and the mob were then, the police were doing things like carrying out like massed, a massed dawn raid against me was I, when I was the senior senator and the only Pauline, significant opposition Pauline. politician Jersey's yeah. ever had. Without a search warrant, like a 10-strong police squad, without a search warrant, just arresting me and carting me off to the jail and stealing all of my data on all of my computers, my records, basically stealing the private data and hundreds and hundreds of my constituents who have written to me and spoken with me and all, about all kinds of very private matters. And this was all basically seized by the police. Now, that was a deliberate and calculated act designed to terrify and frighten off other survivors and other people and witnesses and whistleblowers from having any further contact with me. This was a big, this was a big kind of hit that was designed absolutely to instill a climate of fear right. and discredit you. people on Jersey and to discredit me. And when you look at the actual technical legal definitions of terrorism under the United Kingdom terrorism law, and under the United States and under the accepted definitions by the United Nations and a lot of other countries, the whole enterprise of illegally suspending the police chief and then turning this captured, corrupted, mafiaized police force against 
free and fair and proper functioning democracy and against the proper representation of ordinary members of the public and causing fear in amongst the public, stopping them being able to enjoy their proper political representation, that's an act of terrorism. So effectively, what was done by the Jersey mob in the suspension of the police chief and then going against me was an act of terrorism. I'm now, stop you there. That was, ultimately, that was ultimately authorised sure. by Buckingham Palace. Are you sure it was authorised by the Buckingham Palace? I mean, is there a record uh, we, of we that or is it just... Yeah. We can be absolutely certain of that because as crazed and as, well, a number of them, like the Balash brothers, for example, are, are you know, plainly diagnosable psychopaths. Mm. But as mad and as corrupt and as hubristic as the local mob are and used to absolute immunity and total power, not even they, I think, would have gone as far as like illegally suspending the police chief and then politically oppressing and suppressing the only significant opposition. Yeah, that would have been an operation. Yeah, yeah. And unless they, unless they had been given the green light, they, they absolutely would have been given the green light for that. And of course, at that time, when this was happening, Jimmy Savile was still alive. He was a very close friend of Prince Andrew, Charles. Prince Charles also is a very close friend of a former Church of England um, bishop, Peter. We are going to go there after the break. So let's stop here because we've got to sure. take a break and then okay. we'll be right back and we'll take a look at, at Charles. We'd like to look at the future monarch of Great Britain and he's about to become regent by all accounts. So he will be mm -hmm. in charge and he has lots of connections to various scandals involving child abuse. And that comes up after this break, we'll be right back. Now that summer is almost here and COVID is almost gone, this may be a good time to get some things off your to-do list, like maybe getting life insurance. My mom is really good with finances and she's always telling me, what about life insurance? It's so important. And I can tell you that Policy Genius is a great place to get life insurance because you can compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? Well, you can save as much as 50% or more of life insurance by comparing those quotes. And you could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare those policies for you. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. This is how it works. Getting started is really easy. First, you head to policygenius.com, and in minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and scheduling for you. Policy Genius never sells your information to other companies, and that means you don't have to worry about your privacy, and they don't add extra fees. Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And welcome back. You're watching Narrative Live. Stuart Sivray is our guest from Jersey, the island of Jersey, off the coast of uh, France, as, as it were, actually. You had a bit of an incident there earlier on I, this year, didn't it? Wasn't the British monarch sending her navy over for a couple of days and there was a there was an incident involving the the, the French? What, what was going on with that? Yeah, and that, that's a consequence of, I, I guess, what we could call our version of the, the Trump nightmare over here mm. on this side of the pond, which, of course, is Brexit, the absolutely deranged and completely destructive and damaging uh, withdrawal of, of the UK from Brexit. Because of that, all kinds of consequences have happened and are going to happen even more dramatically and damagingly to Britain. But one of those is that the, the existing EU fishing agreements got, you know, 
scrapped, as it were. So the French, the, the Jersey authorities decided that they were going to revel in this new power and decided to rip up the fishing agreement and exclude lots of French fishermen who traditionally fished in our waters out of it. So the French, of course, weren't having that. So they sent a flotilla of their fishing boats over to blockades and Helios harbours of protest. And in response to this, the ridiculous stunt by the idiot Boris Johnson, you know, the these awful government, they sent a couple of Royal Navy destroyers over. So it was, it was comic, it was comedy gold. It's comedy gold, but, but it does add up to a lot of what we've been saying on narrative and elsewhere with all our colleagues on Twitter. This is a part of a giant transnational mob that's taking over the yeah. world or at least trying to. So when you look at things like Brexit and you look at things like Trump and you look at these are significant elements of this transnational crime organizations that mm -hmm. are invading our institutions and invading our countries and overtaking them in some to some extent. And Brexit is a yeah. perfect example of that. And so it's this is not anything anyone really wanted except for Putin. I can't think of anyone else who really would have thought if this was a good idea. And it's important to remember that there in Jersey is a lot of Russian mob money because, sure. in fact, that's where they like to do a lot of their banking because there's a lot of very wealthy oligarchs living in London, some of the richest. Uh, and I think about Abramovich in particular is one probably the richest in London. And so you've got these these elements that are, you can call them oligarchs, but they're also transnational criminals. And and so you've, you know, this is not just a, oh, let's have a skirmish about boats and whatever. It's a fundamental shift in power that's taking over our institutions, taking over our justice systems and replacing it, it with this sort of this bizarre feudal system, as you describe it. It's a system that we don't recognize from the modern era. It's a system where if you're Prince Charles, you get a set of rules. If you're Donald Trump, you get a set of rules. If you're anybody else, no, you don't get those rules. You have to get much stricter rules to follow. It's I, I've said to people in America and uh, Americans and others, I, I've said this very often, America and Britain, the, the broad populations of both of, of our nations, regard each other as allies. We imagine Britain and America where, you know, when the chips are down, we, we'll stand shoulder to shoulder, mm. you know, as we did in two world wars. So... There's this kind of naive view that Britain, therefore, is a, a natural and strong ally of the USA. Most of the British people may well be, and, you know, a lot of the ordinary aspects of the state. But I've no doubt whatsoever that when you get down to the real British power elite, since the American Revolution, I don't think they've ever, frankly, accepted the constitutional political settlement of the United States and have hated and feared the idea of a lawful constitutionalism system, greatly preferring the maintenance of monarchy. So I, I, today, I've got no doubt at all that a substantial part of the British traditional uh, elites, the landowning elites, they would much rather bluntly ally to Putin and they would rather see Putin's de facto monarchy succeed and the constitutional democracy of the USA fail and get weakened. And I, I absolutely, I've got no doubt at all that there's been an element of that in the in the British elite. So there was a narrow faction of the British elites that kind of welcomed the arrival of Trump on the scene, which, which was absolutely a, a ridiculous thing to do. Including um, Prince Charles, including Prince Charles. And there's these incredible photos of him chumming up with, with Donald Trump and with uh, Melania 
in a way that you didn't see from any of the other members of the royal family. And it seems to me that they were quite close, at least if not, if not, you know, closest friends, they were close ideologically in a lot of things. And that is one of the biggest concerns as we see Charles approaching the Regency as he becomes the future king. And that's going to happen years, maybe months. That will dramatically change the way the world operates because Charles is going to be the king. It's, he still have a lot of power. Monarchs still have oh. a ton of power. They control oh, institutions, sure. I mean, the, orders, and, mm -hmm. and massive amounts of people. Yeah, the, the monarchy, the monarch still has all kinds of power of veto over even the UK government mm -hmm. if they're introducing laws that the monarch considers might actually impinge upon her rights or the rights of her family. She's got a right not to approve them. Right. And right. The, the monarchy and the heir to the throne, Charles, got a right, certain rights to be always consulted about certain things. And of course, they have this general power to lobby. Can you imagine more powerful lobbyists anywhere in the world able to influence politics and political decisions than actually the monarch and, and the monarch's heir. And they're not mentioned, but they do. At the end of the day, of we, we had do. the spider yeah. memos, which were yeah. Charles's memos to a lot of, of, of mm -hmm. secretaries, explaining to people exactly why they should be doing the job the way he thought he should, they should be doing it. And still to this day, I think they have, as you mentioned, the Privy Council. There's so many other ways that they have to influence uh, policy that it's just, uh, they're very powerful still. Obviously, they're the, sure. kings, the kings and queens of, of the greatest empire in the world. So it's really, you got to look at all this in that sense. Now, let's take a look at some of these letters because these are really striking and I may not have the same ones that you have in front of you. So this is the one that's dated the 5th of August, 2015. It's dear, Sir Christopher is the Queen's private secretary, right? Yeah, okay. he was. He's recently left that role and has now become, believe it or not, the ethics advisor appointed by Boris Johnson <laughs> right. to the, to the minister, ministers. We're going to go, we're going to discuss that in a little bit, but so let me read this to you. So thank you for your letter, 22nd June, 2015, which letter states that I am asking Her Majesty to intervene in the island's domestic affairs, which I am not doing in manner you suggest. Your letter further suggests that I should refer William Balhash. The, technically, the, the UK government has always, although the Crown dependencies have got a certain degree of independence, as we've already discussed, ultimately, constitutionally, it's always been clear that ultimately, the UK government does have ultimate responsibility for good governance, the proper rule of law, mm. and human rights on the Crown dependencies. Now, that used to be held by the Home Office, but for some mysterious reason, again, without any consultation with the people of the Crown dependencies, some years ago, that responsibility just got suddenly moved over to the uh, UK Justice Department. It's been like a hot potato moved around from one office to the other. And, 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 and well, nothing happens in, while it gets transferred well, from I, side I, to side. I think it was a very clear decision because the people that hold all the crown posts on Jersey are always lawyers and the local judiciary. And they've always had very close connections with London lawyers like um, Seven Bedford Row, for example. And they've had all kinds of direct and long established contacts with the English judiciary. So I'm no doubt about it at all that it was rather problematic and getting it more so for the local authorities to be technically answerable to the Home Office, which has a law enforcement role. So they greatly preferred to suddenly go over to the Justice Department. So that change was made. Now, who was involved in that? That's a mystery in and of itself. But the, the mere fact, when you, it's, it's indicative of just how rotten and corrupt and problematic the Crown dependency situation is. When you're talking about the administration of justice, mm. you're dealing with, in theory at least, 
of any parts of the state that should be impartial, objective, and neutral, not involved in partisan, controversial political issues, then that's the Justice Department, right? The Ministry of Justice should be absolutely the last department of government that's got anything to do with really controversial, dubious, uh, illegal and sleazy things like protecting mobs on the Crown dependencies. So you have to scratch your head and ask, what on earth is the Justice Department doing having responsibility for the fundamentally problematic mob turfs Good of the question. tax havens like the Crown dependencies? Good question. Really unbelievable. Let's continue reading here. Firstly, to draw to your attention that there is a direct and indirect body count as a result of the matters which I am writing to you. Yeah. And more particularly, as a result of what I and others see as a breakdown in the rule of law consequent upon the island's abandonment by its monarch. There is an additional unquantifiable toll in human misery that stems from the matters which I am raising and the fact that nobody has done anything effective since Dr. Philip Balash resigned, in quotation marks, soon after his infamous Liberation Day speech. Now, these are massive accusations that have sure. been, you know, as, as, into, as late as 2015, we're not talking about a long time ago, leveled yeah. against the Queen and the monarch through her private secretary then, Sir Christopher mm -hmm. Gate, and it's these are stunning. Firstly, he talks about the body counts, so he's suggesting that the, what you were suggesting at the time, the murders. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, the, the breakdown of rule of law. And that, I think, is referring specifically to the people who are governing there, the Balashes in particular. But, who, who are in, who but that's in, right. The, yeah. the, the, the Balash brothers are traditional Jersey crime family stock, a couple of local mobster lawyers, and Philip Balash got to become a crown officer that is directly appointed by the, the monarch via what is called her letters patent, which is her like conferring, you know, a, a letter authorizing power on her behalf. So all of the Jersey crown officers, which includes people like the solicitor general, the attorney general, the deputy bailiff and the bailiff, and a couple of others like the lieutenant governor and the dean, they're appointed solely and expressly by the monarch. They are not answerable in any meaningful way to any entity, any kind of democratic or lawful accountability process on Jersey. Rather, they are solely appointed and empowered by the monarch. Now, these, these people- that. That's gonna be Charles in the future. Yeah. So as, as we continue to discuss what the Charles's involvement in all of this, it's Charles who will be picking these people who will be running Jersey in the future and overseeing this this mob island you know, some people might say that's right, mob yeah. let me just finish up here and then we'll get uh, some more thoughts from you on what the rest of this is about so your suggestion is that i refer william balash's conduct to the island's authorities is not a viable one there are no relevant authorities as you've been telling us the only authority we have is relevant to william balash is our duke and which duke is that that would have been that's the monarch that's the monarch because the the ancient tradition of the channel islands is that um the, uh, the, 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 it, the English monarch is effectively one of our people since William the Conqueror defeated the indigenous English monarch. W William the Conqueror was the leader, was the Duke of Normandy, the leader of Normandy of which the islands you know, were a, a part. So ever since then, the islanders have customarily referred to the, the British monarch as our Duke, right. not for Duke. Okay. So that's where that expression comes from. And that's the only relevant authorities you've been telling us. So that's an interesting letter. 